Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 81 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with computer forensic consultant Mark Lanterman about the dark web. The dark web. I feel like we need an awesome audio filter on that. I hope we get one. <laughs> the dark web. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we are being productive, and we think that's just awesome. So visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud. Future-proof your law firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacuslaw.com. So Sam, uh, today which again, when this airs will be a week from now, but whatever. Uh, I presented at the Minnesota Solo Small Conference the findings of a survey I conducted in conjunction with Minnesota CLE and the State Bar Association. Um, this was an economic survey um, of solo and small firm lawyers across the state of Minnesota and had a number of interesting findings about um, billable rates and net income and practice areas and firm size, all sorts of stuff. But there a couple of the most interesting takeaways I saw, um, this is a survey we've conducted off and on for the last five or 10 years. And one of the things we're seeing with solo and small firm lawyers in Minnesota is that they are more satisfied with their careers than they've been in the past. Um, solo and small firm lawyers are actually getting happier and that is awesome to see. Was it what? Am I right that it was sixty-five percent of lawyers are very satisfied or mostly satisfied with their jobs? That is correct. Which I think is comparable, if not even superior, to just about any other profession satisfaction number. I think you could find. Yeah, I quickly googled it while you were doing your presentation, and what I came up with, and this could be a horrible number for all I know, but it, it the the headline was that the majority of Americans are unsatisfied with their jobs which suggests that lawyers are doing, or at least lawyers in Minnesota, are doing considerably better than the rest of America when it comes to happiness about their jobs. Yeah, so I, I found that reassuring. Um, that was coupled with data that showed that um, billable rates and net incomes were up, that um, I think the, the health of the sole and small profession as a whole is improving. That said, some of the data also showed that new lawyers and their insane, like, shitloads of student loans are <laughs> are one part of the profession that's in deep trouble. Um, the student loan uh, debt load of new lawyers is completely unsustainable in the solo and small firm space, um, which is potentially different than some large firm new lawyers who can actually pay their student loan debt. Um, but if you have $150,000 or $200,000 in student loans, we saw that 15% of new solo and small firm lawyers make under $25,000 a year in net income. And there's just, there's no way to build a life off of that. The other thing we saw both in the data and then anecdotally as we were presenting it around the state is that most older lawyers with no malice didn't realize that it's that bad for younger lawyers. They, hmm. they, they graduated from law school without huge student loan burdens and they They've heard stories, but just didn't know 
that it was that hard to graduate and be economically sustainable for young lawyers right now. What about, um, I, I was struck by sort of the profile of lawyers who are billing at least $200 an hour or higher seemed like a pretty, uh, there were some characteristics about that demographic that were pretty easy to pull out of the data and say like, they, they tend to have certain characteristics and, and they sort of follow those characteristics from one question to the next. Yeah, so in our data of kind of the highest earning, which I think was 11, 8 or 11% of sole and small firm lawyers in Minnesota, there was a group who had the highest net incomes, who billed the highest hourly rate, which was over $250 an hour. They then took home, on average, over a quarter million dollars a year in net income. Those firms were all full-time. They were predominantly estate planning firms, sprinkled in with some business and real estate and other things. They often were big enough to have support staff, which then meant that their overhead was a lot higher. And so they were for, they were mostly not solo firms. Certainly there are PI firms that are also in that high income category, but the characteristics were much more sophisticated firms are then what result in higher income for attorneys. Uh, whereas we saw some smaller percentage of firms who are billing under 125, under 150 dollars an hour, and those are firms that are then usually attorneys who are taking home under 50 grand. Um, hmm. And to be clear, the vast majority of sole and small firm lawyers in Minnesota, although this data is generally applicable around the country, their net income is between 40 and 60 thousand dollars a year. And that's the plurality of sole and small firm lawyers in Minnesota and around the country. It's very much a middle-class profession with a few outliers. Sort of switching gears, but I also saw that the Yellow Pages remains the supreme most popular advertising method by solo and small firm lawyers. It, sh it shocked me, but a full, <laughs> a full half of solo and small firm lawyers are still paying to be in the Yellow Pages. I, I don't get it, but what do I know? It's good to get a reminder every once in a while that um, in our tech-enabled world that we live in is not necessarily the same world that everybody else lives in. And maybe they're just throwing their money away because they always have done it that way. Or maybe it's maybe it's yeah. bringing in the clients. Yep. And, and like different people live in different universes than I. There are just as many. Apparently, there are just as many people who advertise in church bulletins to get clients as have blogs or are on Twitter. Right. So there's that. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's awesome, right? The old the old methods maybe still work, or maybe there's just a bunch of clueless lawyers throwing money away. I, I don't know. Maybe we can dig into that in somehow further on. Um, fascinating data. I, I, don't, I don't know how much Minnesota can be used as a proxy for the rest of the country, but it was a pretty big survey, and we've got a pretty big base of lawyers here. So, uh, so maybe, maybe you're seeing something similar in other states, too. Talking about the Yellow Pages, I guess, is a perfect pivot. Really? For the dark web? Yeah, for my conversation with Mark about the oh, dark I th web. I thought you, I thought you were going to pivot by, oh, talking about middle class, let's talk to a guy who owns two Teslas. <laughs> well, there's that too. But let's talk about the dark web and go from extremely old school low tech to the deepest corners of the internet. My name is Mark Lanterman, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Computer Forensic Services in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Now, you're 
your job title and the name of your firm doesn't really convey the scope of what you do. You're sort of, I mean, you do computer forensics. You dig into systems and try and extract data for law enforcement and lawyers and and other things. But um, but you do more than that, right? You do um, hacking, professional hacking, basically. Well, what we do here, I, I think of us... Um, as, you know, our company basically has has two sides to it. The first is reactive. Normally, we're initially engaged because something bad has happened to one of our clients. Our clients are in pain, which means either they have been breached, they've been sued, uh, the uh, SEC is knocking at their door, the IRS has seized their 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 uh, filing cabinets. So something bad has happened. So our reactive piece is normally the first way we are introduced to uh, clients. Hmm. Um, at that point, we uh, we then preserve uh, electronic evidence. We analyze that data and we assist uh, counsel in trying to figure out a narrative around the story. What has happened and who is responsible? And I suppose later on, they probably come back to you and ask you to help them fix their systems so that sort of thing doesn't happen again. Well, exactly. Because during uh, the initial incident response, we become very familiar with our clients' um, uh, infrastructure and very familiar with their culture. So it puts us in a very good position to make recommendations to help minimize the pain should this ever happen again, <laughs> whatever this uh, is. So that could be assisting with uh, policy reviews, policy creation. Um, it could uh, be in the form of a security audit, perhaps uh, a penetration test. And just just to help minimize uh, potential future uh, incidents from uh, from um, happening. And uh, I, the penetration test is kind of the the sexy professional hacker thing or pen test, um, which is basically where they're paying you to try and break into their systems, right? And I think you've said that your goal is to drop a file on the CEO's computer desktop. Well, you know, and and. It, Basically, yes. And awesome. uh, so a, a <laughs> penetration test is when we put on our, our hacker hats and we try to see what, what it is that we're seeing as, as vulnerable access points. But there is so much more to a security assessment and to a penetration test than simply going after an organization via the, the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, just a, a quick example uh, there's a there's a company in my building who asked me to perform a uh, a penetration test, and uh, I told them, okay, tomorrow at twelve o'clock, I'm going to start the uh, start the test. And they were ready. They had their IT guys on standby. They're all set. And I literally got in the elevator went down to their office, walked in the front door, went into an office, grabbed three banker boxes and a laptop and walked out and no one saw me do it. <laughs> I, I brought everything up to my office. I called them at 12.05 and I said, the test is done. They said, really? We didn't see any activity on our network. 
I said, well, why don't you come up to my office and let me show you what I found? <laughs> and so it, it, it taught them a lesson that, you know, the security doesn't just mean keeping the 17-year-old hackers out. Right. Um, it means also considering your, your physical security. Oh, that's that's cool. And I, I we could geek out on uh, on penetration tests and security <laughs> stuff all, all day, if, as far as I'm concerned. But today, I want to talk to you about the dark web, which is um, which is in the news a lot. I feel like it always should be said like that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's in the news a lot. It's it's like a it's like the boogeyman. What is going on on the dark web? And and you know it, it had its heyday with the Dread Pirate Roberts and the and the Silk Road business, but it, it hasn't gone away. It's and it's really kind of been around for a long time. And so, um, but I think we hear that word and don't really appreciate what it means. So I'd like you to kind of introduce us to the dark web. What is it? And and what happens there, and and what's the deal with it? Certainly. Well, first, it has a really cool name, yeah. the dark web. <laughs> and the dark, the dark web was actually created by the U.S. Navy in an effort to anonymize the military's activity on the Internet. So the purpose of the dark web is to act like um, an invisibility cloak. Okay, We don't want anyone to see what we're doing. Now, that technology subsequently was let into uh, the public. So now the public can take advantage of this anonymizing service known as uh, the dark web. And, when, um, and when, whenever the public has access to something, that also means that criminals uh, have access to, to the same technology. Now, I, I think of the dark web as... Deadwood, South Dakota, circa 1860. Mm-hmm. No sheriff, you know, there, there's no sheriff, no rules, no one's going to tell me what I can do, and, uh, you know, no, no, one, no one is going to stop me. Well, so what's the difference between that and the normal web? Because most people think of the internet as pretty wild, wild westy. Yep. So, so the difference is this. If you are on a traditional browser... And uh, let's say I, I, I go to your web page. From those logs, from your server's logs, you can track that back to me. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of anonymity. I know that if I post something on your web page, you will be able to track it back to me. If, if I am, um, you know, if I'm selling illegal products on a regular web page, Law enforcement can track that to me. With the dark web, the the internet traffic, the connection between me and you is not a straight line. When I now when I connect to your web page, it's it's from me to you. If I'm on the dark web and I connect to your dark web web page, that connection goes around the world a, a number of times usually through either Russia or China. And we all know how, uh, how they uh, love to respond to U.S. legal service. <laughs> so, so it's kind of a dead end. Right. And uh, the criminals know that. So, so basically, the connection from me to you goes around the world a couple of times, and that puts up almost uh, insurmountable um, roadblocks to uh, investigators. 
So the criminals know this and they take advantage of it. So um, so it's a military network gone bad, basically, or gone partly bad. At Pretty least. much. It's a well, you know, and I, I wouldn't even say it's it's gone bad. You know, it's operating as it was intended to do. The mm-hmm. thing is, is that the there, there are bad people using it to do bad things. And so, you know, we, we've all heard of the Silk Road and we, and we know that you can still buy and sell drugs and body parts on the dark web. But uh, but what other kinds of things are there? It's It's been my experience that the sensationalized bits of technology never fully describe it. And it, and it seems like limiting the dark web to criminal activity is probably wrong, but I, I don't know enough to be sure. Well, you know, um, I'll tell you, um, in, in our cases, and we're uh, we're crime lab for um, the largest law enforcement agency here in Minnesota. So we, we, we assist law enforcement in investigations involving the dark web. Mm-hmm. So in that, in, in that respect, most of our dark web related cases are, uh, are criminal in nature. But let me just say this. Just because someone is on the dark web or has a web page on the dark web or is selling goods or services on the dark web does not make them a criminal. That being said, most criminals use the dark web. Gotcha. So, um, it's, you know, it's kind of like Bitcoin. Yeah. Not, you know, it, it, you know, just because you use Bitcoin doesn't make you a criminal, but all criminals use Bitcoin. Or or uh, or BitTorrent, which has nothing to do with Bitcoin, but uh, which is often used for for uh, pirating things, but has plenty of legitimate uses if people want to use it that way. Absolutely. So what we're seeing with the dark web is it's it's incredible technology that criminals are taking advantage of. Gotcha. Um, so you know what we're seeing in our cases, we see you know certainly we see, we have the the drug related cases. But a couple of other cases that we're seeing are kind of interesting. We're seeing um, uh, what's known as doxing. And uh, Sam, doxing is the online sale of our personal information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you may be familiar with breaches involving uh, healthcare providers. So, you know, your, uh, you know, your uh, healthcare provider has your name, your date of birth, your, your address, your, your email. Maybe they have uh, your driver's license information. Maybe they have your credit card uh, on file, your work history, what prescriptions uh, you've received. And what happens in breaches of healthcare providers is they're they're stealing that information and they're selling it on the dark web. Sure. And, and that information is very valuable. Um, you know, it, it ranges anywhere from eighty dollars to about five hundred dollars, depending on what part of town you live in. And uh, so we're seeing cases in which personal information is being uh, stolen. It's turned around on the on the dark web. It's being sold, uh, and uh, you know we're having uh, criminals that are going back to the dark web, buying uh, counterfeit driver's licenses in your name, uh, a counterfeit social security card in your name, and with your real social security number. And they're opening up bank accounts. They are uh, taking out mortgages for properties. 
Um, so, so they're, they're, these identity takeovers are having disastrous effects uh, on, on their victims. Hmm. So there are definitely uh, dangerous people doing business on the dark web. Is it in itself dangerous? Is there a risk in going and and uh, is there a directory? I mean, I guess let me start with that. Is how how would one get on the dark web if they wanted to? Sure. Well, in order to use the dark web, you need a, a special browser. Um, you can't just get on the dark web using Internet Explorer or or Safari because of how the dark net works the technology behind it, you need um, a special portal, so to speak. And that's known as a Tor browser, T-O-R. And that stands for the Onion Router. And the reason why it's called the Onion is because just like an onion, the dark web's purpose is to have multiple layers. And that's that is their scheme for anonymity. Remember I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I connect to your dark web, I'm, it's going around the world. Well, it's like layer after layer after layer after layer um, before I can figure out who, who you are. And usually there are too many layers and I can't figure out who you are. So you need a certain browser. Now, one thing about the dark web is that it's estimated that Google indexes only uh, approximately 14% of the internet. That's it. But if you think about it, isn't that where you and I live? You know, mm-hmm. that's Netflix and Amazon and lawfirm.com and, you know, bank.com. But that's only 14% of the internet. Hmm. And, you know, there are uh, legitimate uses for the dark web as well. Typically, though, we are seeing criminal activity on the dark web, but, you know, there are legitimate retailers uh, that have web pages on, on the dark web. But because Google doesn't, doesn't index the dark web, you need a special search engine. And, uh, you know, we're talking about whether or not the dark web is, is, is good or bad or dangerous. The, one of the one of the most popular search engines on the dark web is called Evil. So I'll, I'll <laughs> because Google I'll says let do you no decide evil. Decide if you, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I'll let you decide if it's uh, if if it's okay to use. I would say that uh, there there certainly are risks going to the dark web. Um, we have found uh, a significant number of zero-day exploits, uh, meaning you know viruses and malware on the dark web. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's kind of like going to uh, a downtown street at three in the morning. Hmm. You know you're you know you you may not want to be there hmm. um, unless a, there's a reason for you to be there. You know certainly you want to use caution. So, um, well, you know what, let's, let's stop for a moment and take two minutes so that our sponsors can have their say. And when we come back, I want to talk briefly about getting on the dark web. And then I want to ask you what's in style in law firm security breaches. So we'll take two minutes and we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Ruby receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. 
When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully managed desktop as a service, engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, simplifying your practice management since 1983. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. And we're back. So, Mark, you mentioned the Tor browser, which I actually downloaded before our show. And so now I'm curious, uh, if I want to go to a dark website, uh, what do I actually do after I've downloaded and installed the Tor browser? Well, you know, one thing that you can do is, uh, and you can use Google to do this, is you can get on Google and Google, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I want to see... Uh, dark websites pertaining to fill in the blank. Okay. And that that will typically steer you to directories of dark web web pages. So it sounds like the dark web is kind of like the internet 15 years ago where I was mostly finding addresses on hand hand assembled directories or on billboards and magazine ads. You are not far off. Okay. <laughs> and uh, you know, so, you know, you can, you'll find these listings. And one thing that, that you'll notice, Sam, is that these are not .com web pages. Right. Um, these web pages end in .onion, ah. uh, indicating to the user that these, uh, you know, that these are, in fact, dark web pages. I feel like it should be .evil. Or like dot, dot darknet no, or something. That's only the search engine. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so uh, so I think uh, we're going to have motivated a whole crew of listeners to go and download the Tor browser, look up some dark websites, and go and see how much um, a finger costs or something like that, which I think is, is educational. And I'm, I'm certainly going to do that after we're done here. <laughs> well, and you, and you know what's interesting? You know, there there are few things that that you cannot buy on the dark web. Uh, yeah. You know, it, we've had cases involving the sale of real U.S. passports, for hmm. example. That's that's incredible. I well, I just heard a radio show about uh, a woman who learned that uh, you can buy cadavers in the Philippines if you want to fake your own death, and they will. They will. Um, uh, you can you can claim one, and they'll uh, they'll they'll burn it up and and cremate it, and you can pass off the cremated remains as yourself and go and live in the wilderness on cash for a few months and until everybody all your creditors get off your back or what or whatever it is that you're trying to avoid. So, sky's the limit, I guess. Yeah, I'm, 
I'm I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's switch gears entirely and um, and talk about uh, trends in law firm security breaches because I know that you are privy to information about what firms are experiencing that doesn't hit the news. So, what's kind of in style right now? Well, Sam, what we're seeing with the number of our law firm clients, and these are these are large, you know, hundreds of attorney sized law firms, mm-hmm. is a, a variation of what's known as CEO spoofing. And w- what is meant by CEO spoofing is um, I'm the CEO, you are my CFO. And I send uh, you an email saying, hey, I need you to wire, you know, a million dollars to this account. And it turns out that actually I'm not the CEO, um, I'm a hacker, and I just tricked you into wiring money to my offshore account. And that, that kind of indicates to me how the word, that seems to me like to indicate how loose the word hacker has become if, they're, if all I really have to do is, it's more social engineering, right? Well, it, you're exactly right, because what we're seeing is that the hackers aren't actually hacking your systems, they're hacking your people. Right. And they're, they're, they're tricking people. And, and in our, uh, you know, in our uh, cases, uh, we have had, a, we've had several large law firms that have been breached in 2016 using a, a variation of this. And the way that the scam is working is the managing partner of the law firm sends an email to the HR director saying, hey, I need a copy of all W-2 information for all of our employees, and I need it in an hour. Gotcha. So the good HR employee gathers it together and and responds to the email, and, and off it goes. And the problem is the email did not come from the managing partner. It came from this attacker. So, and if you think about what information is on your W-2, your name, your date of birth, your address, your social number, you know, pretty much everything you would, you know, you would need to take out credit in someone else's name. Right. Um, So, uh, you know, so we're seeing these types of attacks against very sophisticated uh, law firms. I think you talked about another one where it was actually a matter of actual money, where the 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 CEO or the partner supposedly asked the uh, somebody to withdraw money. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Well, uh, well, that one was uh, that was not uh, a law firm. That was oh, okay. a uh, medical device company here in Minnesota. And in that case, the CFO wired fifty million dollars on one email request from the CEO, did not call the CEO to verify this, simply wired $50 million. (laughs) As uh, as one does. You know, (laughs) I I mean, you know, we we should not be, you know, we should not trust email in that way. If you get a request for money or, you know, to wire money or for sensitive information, Call the person and verify that this is them. Um, now that medical device company is in a very public uh, lawsuit with their bank, trying to trying to blame the bank that it was their fault that they asked for the money to be wired. 
Which it's clearly not. Which it's not. And, you know, no one wants to be that headline. And, um, you know, these, these, these criminals are very smart. And I swear most of them have psychology degrees because they're <laughs> gaining our trust very easily. And they're tricking us into turning over, you know, valuable information or, or money. Well, it seems to me that when you're, when you're telling the normal person that, uh, uh, you know, a, a prince, an African prince has uh, decided to leave them money and they just need help uh, transferring the money through the U.S. for some reason, I mean, sure, people fall for it, but most people are like, yeah, come on, that's ridiculous. But when you tell a law firm that somebody wants to deposit a $350,000 retainer with them, it's, it doesn't sound crazy, uh, especially at a big firm. And, uh, and so then, then it becomes harder to spot if you accept the premise. And, uh, and then you're not necessarily on the lookout and it doesn't necessarily raise your, your antenna that they're using a yahoo.com email address, although it probably should. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Well, well, you know, I mean, uh, attorneys are in business. And mm-hmm. when you have a business opportunity, that is not unlike other other cases that they have probably worked on. To them, you know, a, a three hundred and fifty thousand deposit, a thousand dollar deposit, is not unusual. Or at least it doesn't seem crazy. It, it doesn't seem crazy. And you know, one thing that we have seen as well, one other scam that uh, unfortunately we're we're seeing uh, quite frequently is. Uh, Sam, I want to retain you. Uh, I'm in a, a lawsuit against this company in, uh, you know, in Europe. Uh, I'm suing them for defamation. Uh, I call you the next day, Sam. Great news. We've settled the case. They're going to wire you, uh, you know, they're going to wire you uh, $500,000 um, and uh, just go ahead and deposit it into your trust account. <laughs> well, they don't wire the money. Instead, they send a cashier's check. So you deposit the cashier's check. And I go to you a day or so later, Sam, you know, I, I need my money. Okay, I've paid you. Now turn over my money. That was a cashier's check. And then you turn over the money. Hmm. And then about a week later, you're notified by your bank that that was actually a counterfeit cashier's check and you're out the cash. Right. Hmm. So, you know, just be, be careful. Attorneys are being targeted. I was at a, a seminar recently where they talked about, um, I mean, s- spotting a potential scam is shouldn't be all of that hard. But, you know, the scammers are getting better. Their, <laughs> their English is improving. Their grammar is improving. Uh, and they're picking email addresses that at least resemble the name of the thing that they're trying to spoof. But um, but you should be suspicious if something out of the ordinary comes through by email, then verify it. And um, and their recommendation was a couple of things. Obviously, don't click any of the links in the email, but independently verify it. So if you know it came from your CEO, pick up the phone and call the CEO, or open your uh, your a new email. Don't reply to it, but open a new email and email the CEO that way at least, and use your independent you know, your regular autofill email address for that CEO or call the company back without using the information in the email. And so they're, they're using a, a completely independent method of verifying the source. And anytime you're dealing with any substantial amount of money, that seems like a good idea anyway. 
hey, do you really want me to transfer $50 million? Does that sound like a reasonable precaution or is there, and is there more? You know, Sam, that is very reasonable. You know, the, the benefit of technology is it, it's made our lives much more convenient and it's, it's easier now to conduct business. The downside is with that convenience, we're losing security. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, we're making mistakes based on this convenient technology and, uh, you know, we're not following up with phone calls. We're not independently sending emails to a known email address. We're just conducting business as usual, hit reply, if we're even doing that, mm-hmm. and saying, hey, do, you know, do you really want me to send this money? Yes, I do. Do it right now. Okay. So trust but verify and slow down. Yeah, trust, yeah. verify, and slow down and... <laughs> You know, I, I would I would recommend picking up the phone. And I know in this day and age, we're all about texting and email, and some of us don't like talking on the phone. Mm-hmm. But pick up the phone and verify, you know, if you're being asked to transfer money. Make sure that, that you know that that isn't um, a scam. Make sure that you're not being tricked and manipulated into doing this. So be on the lookout for uh, social engineering hacking rather than just the uh, the malicious hacker coming through the internet at your PC, which seems like good advice given how things are shaking out in your experience. So uh, yeah. thank you, Mark, so much. That sounds like probably a good note for us to end on. Sounds good, Sam. Thank you very much. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 o